Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 158. We're wrapping up our run of guests from outside of the baseball realm, and we've got a really good one from the basketball arena. This is a guy um, who I think the world of actually spent a lot of time with him at the University of Connecticut as we were both kind of cutting our teeth in this industry. Um, And it's a timely podcast with the University of Connecticut having just won the national championship, so we couldn't have planned this any better. We're in for a really good episode. I think you'll really enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest is in his fifth season as head strength conditioning coach with the Atlanta Hawks. Previously, he was the head of strength and conditioning for the Golden State Warriors, where he earned two NBA championship rings. He joined Golden State in 2015 after serving in a similar position for the Charlotte Bobcats from 2008 to 2011, and as the assistant strength and conditioning coach for the Chicago Bulls from 2006 to 2008. He's an exercise science graduate of the University of Connecticut and has a doctorate in physical therapy from the University of North Carolina. Please welcome to the show, Mike Err. Mike, thank you so much for joining us, particularly in light of your uh, your travel circumstances for today. Um, this is this is definitely way overdue with how far back we go. So thanks for taking the time. No, it's great to be here. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> no worries at all. Um, so just uh, this is probably a good segue. Give give folks a, a glimpse into the NBA life. Um, obviously, we we called a little pivot in light of some travel dynamics, but it probably gives us a little bit of a glimpse into like the world that professional athletes live in. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I've always said it's an entertainment schedule, not a, not a sports schedule. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, there, there are certain things that happen that you just have to kind of roll with the punches on, you know, for, you know, just kind of share the story is, you know, we had to play a game last night and we have a game today actually. And, you know, we get stuck in the city that we're playing in. And so uh, just because of a plane malfunction. And so, you know, this is in my 13 years of doing this, this is the first time this has ever happened. Uh, but it's, it's part of it and you kind of have to just make your adjustments. And as a, as a staff, we get together and, Hey, how can we strategize to kind of maximize this day despite, you know, what we're facing, I guess. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's some chaos that is around professional sports. Uh, that's maybe not always portrayed well through, through the media. And maybe it is, I don't know. I guess I don't, I guess I'm kind of on the inside looking out. So I don't really know how people, um, think about it, but, uh, it, they make the life as easy as they can from 
nice hotels to bus drives you to where you need to be everywhere on the road. Um, but I, I, but there's always the human factor of it. It's hard to stay on top of, uh, uh, the continually like building up of stress. And so as mm-hmm. you get towards the end of the season, you and everybody else starts to feel the length of that season. So, you know, what, what strategies can you do to kind of maintain yourself throughout the year? You exercise, you eat well, and you do your best to manage your sleep. Um, and I'm sure as you know, like as you, and for myself, as I've added a family and added, you know, my wife and my kids to this process, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier. And just getting older, it doesn't get easier. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I guess that's where you just kind of got to rely on your experience and hopefully the habits you've built up over time to kind of yeah. help yourself get through it. Yeah. Control the controllables. I know we, we played, uh, we played three games in 30 hours in two time zones at one point last year. So definitely yeah. uh, a unique dynamic. And I can't um, even hope- Imagine that. <laughs> I, I do think that's one of the benefits of the pitch clock in baseball that hasn't really been talked about is it probably will make the travel a little bit easier. Um, it'll get people off their feet a little bit more instead of just standing around for, for long, long games. So hopefully that's a little sneaky benefit for the sports medicine and performance science crews out there. Absolutely. Uh, um, but hey, I, I think your story of making it to pro ball was a fascinating one um, because it kind of found you as much as you coveted it. Um, and I think it's especially important that we talk about where you started because uh, the UConn Huskies just won another national championship. We we definitely cut our teeth in the basement of, uh, of Gamble Pavilion <laughs> all those years back. Uh, so to, to give you a quick backstory, Mike was a couple years behind me at UConn. You were an undergraduate while I was a graduate, um, but we were, we were largely attached at the hip for a good year there um, with helping out with like men's and women's basketball, men's and women's soccer, um, working under Chris West, who's, who's done a great job there for a long time. But um, maybe talk about your experience there and, and, and what led to your, your opportunities in the NBA. I mean, I'm very nostalgic about that period of time because of the people who were there. And I think you could probably speak to that as well. But between Dr. Kramer and um, Deesa Hatfield and, and Chris West and Barry Spearing and, and Jerry Martin and Mo Butler, I mean, there's just so many people there who, um, you know, really brought helped me with my experience over time and yourself as well. I mean, it was just it was just a special time. And it was a time when it was kind of Wild West-ish because like there was no official intern program. And so I'd just be there living in the varsity weight rooms and trying to soak up as much as I possibly could, um, which was, which was just amazing for me. And um, it was a great experience. And I was able to kind of, I think for me, one thing that I I realized over time was like, I know not setting out to be an NBA strength coach was probably a unique thing. I mean, obviously now I come in contact with a lot of younger strength coaches who think like, this is the one thing I want to do. And I think there's some advantages to that. Like, obviously, it gives you focus and a drive and it allows you to to build your network very specifically. For me, though, having the experience of working with a number of different sports gave me a kind of more general view of strength conditioning and and allowed me to kind of bring in a lot of different ideas, I felt. Um, and And it certainly didn't limit like my exposure to other people. So somebody who's working with men's ice hockey, you know, I was able to see that and I was able to see soccer and I was able to see football. Um, and so all of that kind of helped kind of shape my experience there, uh, which was, which was really, you know, I think for me really helpful. Um, and then kind of, you know, working towards the NBA, I, I, I mean, I had a unique opportunity. I mean, Dr. Kramer was it's just an amazing advisor um, and I, I owe really my career to him. Uh, or certainly the start of my career to him. And he kind of laid it out. He's like, I got a couple internships available. One of them happened to be in Chicago with the Bulls. He made a call for me. Um, and I, I ended up starting my, my, kind of my summer internship there to kind of finish my degree out. And it was just a unique situation. The assistant strength coach at the time happened to just take another job. And, and the head strength coach, Eric Helland, who brought me in, um, Alvar Meal was still there kind of working upstairs. And, and so we were both kind of working together with him, um, brought me in and I kind of just played the assistant for the first couple months I was there. And they, they allowed me to go down the summer league. Um, and kind of, that was kind of like my first, like on my own gig with, with the team. Um, and when I came back from summer league and I, I think I did an okay job. They offered me a job to stay as the assistant strength coach. So that was really a story. I mean, it was certainly good timing. I, I felt like I kind of seized that opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my step kind of step through the door and mm-hmm. obviously like just wildly appreciative of, of everything that UConn gave me. Kind of be. I think you were actually probably one of my first calls because I was, I was just thinking about it. Because I so, couldn't believe 
yeah. I almost couldn't believe and wrap my head around the situation. It's just never something that really dawned on me. And I think I called mm-hmm. you, I called my parents, I called Dr. Yeah. Kramer and, and, you know, I think it was, it was a good choice that to stay. And, and, and really those couple of years that I was in Chicago was almost like a grad school experience for me. Yeah. I remember, I distinctly remember the call. I was driving uh, to Southside to, to lift at Southside Barbell. I was about a year out of, of grad school. And I remember you were, you had basically committed to, uh, I think, a grad assistantship at the University of Memphis to work yes. with basketball while you were there. And it was like, hey, do I go to the NBA or do I go to college? And I, I remember my response was, most people go to college because they want to go to the NBA. Like, <laughs> you have a chance to skip a step. But there, there's actually, like, you're not good at bragging about yourself, but I, I think there's actually a really important message here because I was around it, is you were a Connecticut kid that went to UConn. And, and that's that's hardly justified, right? It's an in-state, or it's hardly, hardly differentiated. It's an in-state kid and you differentiate yourself what was there i mean while you were there there were lord knows how many exercise science students there were in those programs but you know i was a graduate student which was a, maybe a little bit of a thinner herd and we all like recognized what a star you were in the undergraduate years and and to be honest that was at a time where you probably didn't know you know a, a tenth of what you know now but you differentiated yourself on how well you interacted with people like athletes from every different state in the country across multiple sports, male and female, you know, elite, elite, elite athletes that were NBA lottery picks all the way down to like first year freshmen that, you know, were just trying to stay on the roster. Like, I, I think that's what, what really differentiated you and, and, and people get so caught up in trying to highlight like what they know on a resume and, and you did it with just grinding every single day. Didn't matter whether you were like there for 5am lifts or staying late to help with, you know, somebody wanted to take extra free throws after practice. Like that's the stuff that works no matter what. Um, and you, you know, you kind of built that. It was like range before the book was ever written. You, you established the ability to do that. So all these opportunities, they, they found you, right? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and I think, and geez, man, and, and I, I'm sure you experienced this too, is as you get older, you realize the energy you had in your youth. Yeah. Like use that. I mean, yeah. And, and I did, and I, I do feel like I took advantage of that time. Um, I do remember, you know, the 5 a.m. preps for men's soccer and things yeah. like that. But like, like I wear When it was that. negative, negative 30 wind chill and freezing yeah. the snow on the ground. <laughs> I remember like, but I, like I wear yeah. that as a badge of honor. I mean, yeah. to be able to, to kind of have that, have that experience. Like that was really important to me. Um, and, and I, I was, you know, like it all worked again. It all worked out and I was happy. And, and I actually mentioned one thing is like, uh, you're right. Like I almost didn't know that the strength coaches in the NBA existed. Like I, you know, I mean, I certainly not when I went to college, I thought that that was even an idea, you know? And so, um, it, it it's, it is kind of funny that this is where I've ended up. <laughs> I think we were lucky to, when I look back on it, um, you know, really my first foray into college strength conditioning was Rajesh Patel was like, Hey, I got men's ba- uh, baseball conditioning at 5.30 AM tomorrow, you know, mm-hmm. come by if you want. It was almost like, all right, is easy testing me. But, you know, really Tina Murray with women's field hockey was the one. And, and Tina's obviously doing some amazing things. She was in the NBA is now the, mm-hmm. the Pittsburgh Penguins. But, you know, Tina really gave me my, my like kind of first shot. It was, we were lucky to have mentors that would allow us you know, to fail forward, to kind of struggle when there weren't consequences. And, um, and I, I look back on, I didn't know in the time, but we were, we were so lucky to have such a nurturing environment in that regard. Mm-hmm. For sure. hundred percent. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So you spent some time obviously in the NBA, uh, you were Chicago, um, and then obviously went on to, to Charlotte in the head role and you, you left and you went to, to pursue a doctorate in physical therapy before returning to the NBA. I'm curious, what was the rationale for you and leaving? Like, you know, most people say, Hey, I get to pro level. It's like the, the pinnacle of my profession. Um, and, and you took a, a step back to go and work on things that you feel like you need to develop. What was the rationale for it? Yeah, I think, I, I think at that time in the field, and I guess I might be a little disconnected now, but like a time in that field, it was like Gray Cook, Charlie Weingroff, there was these physical therapists who were, who were also strength coaches and, and they were doing this really cool thing of bridging this space between performance and rehab. And I was, mm-hmm. I was really attracted to that. Um, even people like yourself were talking a lot about corrective exercise at that time. And, 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 re- and I, and maybe movement quality is probably the better word. So like, how do we improve movement quality? And I thought, and I was really, again, really gravitated towards that. And I felt, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, I felt a, a more formal education would help me maybe kind of enter that space a little bit better, as well as give me a career set that would allow me to do some different things. Um, so that was probably my, you know, professional rationale around it. Um, now I will say this, like I certainly underestimated some things 
about PT school. Uh, like it's a medical degree. And I think that's important to recognize. Um, and, and, and again, it's okay now that now that I know what it kind of what that entails. Um, also, I think a lot of the PT educations, or at least mine was at UNC is a very general approach. And so I think the depth of which I thought I was going to get may not have been, quite been there. And, and to be, to be frank, like a lot of the subjects that I ended up having like spend the most time studying were things that were not like my favorite things to study. Um, the things that were easy, like biomechanics and things like that, like came easy, but I had to spend the time on the other stuff to like make the grades type thing. Um, but at the end of the day, I would say PT school was extremely helpful for me and mostly because of my clinical experiences. Like I had some amazing clinicals and my last clinical was with Bill Hartman at IFAST and he just opened up a completely new door. And I mean, I would pay for PT school just to have that one experience again. Um, he just opened up a massive kind of new realm for me to just kind of look at how the human body moves and functions. Um, and that's just been, and that was awesome. Um, so, you know, I think obviously the P, you know, and then looking back and as I finished up PT school, uh, it ended up really reopening the door back to the MBA. Uh, I actually had no intention of going back, Interesting. Um, but I had a few teams call and, my wife blessed me with the at least the opportunity to interview, and um, and then I ended up in Golden State, and it was it ended up being a really obviously a really cool experience and a really good part of like my career that I'll never forget. Yeah, as I say, it worked out pretty well. You're very humble. You got two NBA rings to, to show for it. Um, you know, were there specific competencies from that education that you feel like you use the most? I mean, is it the manual therapy offering? You know, is it the ability to, to identify something that needs to be escalated that you might have otherwise missed, you know, where you would refer it out where in the past you might not even have known to do so? I think for sure. It, I think for me personally, and it was I was able to have better conversations with the rehab professionals. And I think in a lot of these roles, the, you know, directors of performance who are in the NBA, they, they come from a little bit more of a rehab background. So my ability to have conversations with them, um, was somewhat underrated at, you know, I guess I didn't realize that at the time until I started really, again, working again in the NBA, like I was able to have conversations with the rehab folks and talk about this connection and bridge that gap a little bit better than, um, I think I would have previously without knowing the physical therapy education. Um, so that was, I think that was probably the biggest thing that kind of helped me from there. And so in terms of like, I, cause I, I think a lot of the specific, you know, curriculum, like anyone can probably learn that from the extent, I don't mean it like, like it's, I don't want to, I'm not dismissing it, like dismissing the formal formality of it. Cause I think some, in some cases a formal education, the access to the resources, like having a cadaver lab, things like that. Like those are experiences that you may not get just like through regular con ed. Um, but I do think, you know, the whole general principle of like going, understanding how the medical field works, uh, being in a hospital, like things like that helped me to kind of realize kind of the significance from like more of like a health perspective as well. Um, that was, I think that was kind of some of the bigger things I took from kind of PT school that helped me be a better strength coach as well. Absolutely. It's, you know, I'm torn when I look back on my own career, like I would kill to be able to go to do a DPT or massage therapy or school right now. Um, it's just not feasible with three kids and, you know, multiple jobs and all this stuff. But I look back on it, I'm like, what would it have been good for me then? And I think it would have, but at the same time, I, I benefited so much from jumping out and getting experience and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm sure you did too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think it's a sweet spot for a lot of people that they they probably struggle to find. Yeah. And going Um, back was actually probably, I liked the fact that I was able to work for a little bit and then go back. That's not always an option for everybody. And I I understand that that was a huge benefit for me and how even I thought about classes and how I thought about, you know, receiving the the information. It's like, Oh, I kind of could see where that would apply, you know? And so, so that was always helpful too. Yeah. And that happens a lot. Like the business world in particular, you see so many people go back for like MBAs after they've worked for a couple of years and Mm -hmm. oftentimes the companies even pay for it. So I'm sure there's, there's parallels in our performance realm. Um, -hmm. Maybe, maybe switching to like the X's and O's of the actual training side of things is, you know, one of the things that's baseball is something that's, that's constantly evolving. Um, You know, the average players way bigger, stronger than they were, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, We, we evaluate players differently. The game, you know, especially with this year's like, you know, rule changes, things like that. It's, you know, we're seeing way more stolen bases. So it's, you know, we've got new injury trends, all these different things that's evolved. I'm, I'm curious, 
have you seen similar similar parallels in, in like the basketball realm? Certainly in the way players are managed, like the support staffs are much larger and mm-hmm. more more educated than they used to be. But um, you know, how has how has basketball changed over? I mean, man, you've been you've been doing this a while now. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's been some like tactical changes of the game, and I so I and I was kind of looking at this just so I could kind of prep for this. But so my first season was 06, 07. and a couple years before that, I think it was 04, 05 was when they started like really strictly in, enforce the hand checking rule. So yeah. what I think that did was it kind of opened up the game offensively. So you have like the D'Antoni Suns and and kind of the evolution that kind of eventually led to Golden State, kind of this full evolution of player movement, ball movement, school, like shot making with Steph. I mean, and so I think what, I think it happened gradually, but the game is definitely different from where we were 20 years ago. And I don't think that that's like an original thought. Obviously a lot of people have talked about that. Um, but I, but I think with that slight change of rules, people understanding the tactics better, you know, you can see somewhat of the physical changes as well. Um, I think you have guys who can play with a lighter frame than what they used to. Um, And I think obviously players who kind of show off kind of speed, change of direction abilities. um, And and I don't want to use specific names, but there are definitely some players who like, like that is what separates them. Like that is their superpower skill. Like it's more than just like saying we've trained some speed and we're fast. Like this is an elite level that, I mean, we're talking top, top of the entire planet in terms of these physical abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what separates them. And then you have some other players who are, who are just deeply skilled um, Mm -hmm. and who can maximize their, their, or can earn contracts just based off the the fact that they can make, you know, 40% of their threes or, or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. So, um, so yeah, so I guess I would say like tactically, it's definitely the floor spacing, ball movement, shot making Um, technically, like the skill is, is, and, and again, I don't think this is an original thought either. The skill level at the game right now in terms of making shots is just unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Um, like from any time in history, I would think, and, and I, and, and not just one player, like obviously Larry Bird was an amazing yeah. shooter. So, so we're talking like there are now four guys on the floor who could shoot like Larry, who could shoot you incredible. Know, at that kind of skill level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes it, so that makes it really kind of interesting to see and, and and honestly it spoils the college basketball game for me because i just i prefer the nba now just because i love to see guys make shots you know <laughs> it's just a little different um and then you know and so you know i think other physical things is like players certainly cover more distance now than they used to mm-hmm. uh, pace of play the number of possessions in the game has all increased so um you know those are all things that kind of factor into Mm-hmm. I think understanding what these guys are going through from like a stress perspective, mm-hmm. um, in terms of injuries and kind of evaluation, things like that. I don't know if I've seen too much of a difference injury wise mm-hmm. only because, you know, I, as we've gotten, yes, I do think the stress on the body has in, increased, but I also think our approaches to how we, how we address those things have improved too. And Interesting. players now are more their players I would say certainly are more in tune with their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, players are also, you know, again, like you said, staffs are, are doing, I think as a staff size grows, it requires a more coordinated approach amongst your staff members. And I think that coordinated approach allows for better care. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think players are not shy to, you know, voice their opinions on how much they should be playing or not at times. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to kind of dictate, uh, they're able to kind of dictate their schedule to some extent. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so the player empowerment kind of role in this is certainly something that that there's no question that that's there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I think from an evaluation standpoint, like obviously the technology that's been injected into the league Mm -hmm. is different. And, you know, there are camera systems now and and, yeah. and and indoor tracking systems that allow you to to know how much movement a guy does on the court. There are force plate, there are you know different uses of technology, whether it be gym aware or force plates that allow you a deeper level of analysis. Because I think I will say this, I do think I think there are smart coaches all along. Like I don't think the technology, yeah. you know, unleashed this massive new kind of like um 
like level of strength coach. I think it allowed the strength coach to see a deeper level of analysis that yeah. allows them to make a, a more refined decision making, mm-hmm. uh, like more refined de- decision making. So, um, and you know, there are smarter coaches too, but so that's kind of part of, uh, I think that's, so I think those were kind of the biggest things that I've seen over the last, you know, uh, 15 to 20 years from like a, from a, from an MBA standpoint. Yeah. I think for, from afar and, and you definitely correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like, uh, the NBA is the one that, that took the biggest step forward and it may be because they started from so far behind the starting line on the nutrition side of things. Like I, my experience obviously in basketball was 2003 to 2005 slash six. And, you know, you had these guys that would just like play five hours a day and just, they'd just be like slugging simple sugars, you know, the entire day before you realized it was, you know, 300 grams of carbs from, from Powerade, like over the course of an <laughs> afternoon. And then you'd wonder why the guy needed to drop some body fat or, or, you know, why all his tendons hurt. And it does seem like there's been a general trend and maybe it's just that some of those guys have been more vocal um, about making those changes to actually eat better. Um, you know, NBA was historically one of the worst. And now I feel like it's actually, you know, much, much better. Have you seen that same kind of trend over your, your 10 years there? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think teams are providing a lot of stuff yeah. for players now. Um, that's, that's definitely changed. I mean, mm-hmm. between meals and, and, and other things and opportunities to kind of get good yeah. food, um, especially, especially when you're on the road, like those opportunities are, are much more frequent than they used to. That's that's huge. Um, you know, we kind of hinted at it, but like le- this load management discussion is a, a hot topic in the NBA. Uh, it really crossed all sports. You know, we, we certainly wrestle with it where people want everybody to play 162 games, you know, <laughs> oft- often in, in like 164 days. But, um, you know, I'm curious, do you, do you take a side on this debate? Is it is it incredibly nuanced across different players, different organizations? Are there are there big picture thoughts on on where you fall on it? Yeah, I mean, I think like anything, I mean, I think knowing the amount of stress an athlete has to like endure is, is really important. And so, I mean, you, I, you would do it with your training in the weight room. So I think, you know, when I think of load management, we're, I'm looking and thinking about player tracking and, and, and the movement that they've done on the floor. So obviously I think knowing that stress on the court, yeah, it's a lot, it seems logical to want to know that too. Um, I think it's also pretty logical to understand like a player's fitness level is going to be determined by the amount of work that they've done. Um, in, you know, whether it be from a force production perspective or an aerobic system development perspective, like that understanding that stress is, I think it's important. Like knowing what they've endured allows them, allows you to see what they can do going forward. So, so to me, like monitoring loads or this whole load management idea is really just kind of like ensuring some level of optimization. Um, and and that just seems like a logical thing to do. Um, now like, so from this perspective, like for me, it's like load management starts in June and and your preparation for the season and then how you, and then whatever role you have on the team, like how do you manage that during the season so that you can kind of recover between, between your bouts of stress. Um, And I do think there are points where you've played five games in seven days and you have to make a decision about what, you know, where an athlete is, but I do, but I don't think you make that decision based solely off of movement data. I think yeah. you have to coordinate that with conversations with the athlete, coordinate that with your orthopedic testing, coordinate that with your performance testing. Um, and then you can make a much more educated decision um, about really the whole, the whole process. And I think that obviously is where your assessment process becomes really important. Um, I do think there's situations where like load management like requires a certain level, like a heightened, a heightened awareness, like rehab yeah. cases, as you get towards the end of our end stage rehab, like that becomes really important. Um, and older players too. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, as I've gotten older and felt changes in my body, it's like, Whoa, mm-hmm. like, okay. Like players are probably going through something similar. Yeah. And so I think that's really, I think that's really important. I would say this, I think in the NBA, it becomes, it, it becomes somewhat self-limiting. Like I've noticed that coaches, players, like, like they can feel the stress building and, and, you know, obviously it's helped helps to have data to back up some of these decisions, but I do find that the sk- the schedule itself some somewhat dictates load management in some way. Yeah. Um, and the second part of it, and I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier too, is like the power structure with players having a strong voice. Um, and I, and again, in certain, certain cases, like rightly so there's definitely, it, it does create a much more democratic, thoughtful process between coaches and players and, and our staff about 
you know, the plans when it regards to practice and games and mm-hmm. stuff. So um, I don't know if that's on every level. Um, yeah. You know, I could see because like, I guess my, my assumption in college is like the coach dictate, dictates the schedule. And yeah. then, you know, I still hear about three hour practices and things yeah. like that. It's like, it doesn't happen in the NBA level um, yeah. because the players won't allow it. And, and, and again, rightly so. Like I, there's no reason in my mind to pee, to have guys on the court for three hours. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, like, I'm not going to say that there's never a situation where load management isn't abused. Um, however, like I'm not on these other staff, so I'm going to, you know, reserve judgment, obviously yeah. in these situations, but I do think it gets like the underlying thing I'm trying to say is like under, like understanding the amount of stress an athlete's going yeah. through is important. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't dismiss like the idea of load management um, because I do think, I do think there's probably an optimal, optimal amount yeah. of stress and there's probably bands at which you want to kind of be between mm-hmm. and, uh, trying to kind of achieve that and giving yourself some type of model to work off of. I, yeah. it makes sense to me. Yeah. I think that the challenge is it, you know, obviously gets sensationalized and mm-hmm. the, as you implied, like 99.9% of the time, this is, this happens and no one hears about it. You know, the, the thing we hear about is the nuclear option where a superstar sits for a game, you know, after playing, like you said, five out of seven and someone who bought tickets doesn't get to see the, the player that they've hoped to see for the last few months. And but you can't you can't vilify an entire approach. We've always done this. It's just been more intuitive than, you know, now where we actually have lots of quantifiable data and, you know, predictive norms and things like that. You can you can be as granular as you want. Right. You can you can draw blood, saliva, urine every mm-hmm. single day on one of these guys and, you know, take it to the nth degree. But I, I think that's the problem is they, you know, they, they kind of crap on a sports medicine or a strength conditioning staff for, you know, and, and a coaching staff for applying some of these things and not realizing that this has happened for decades. It's just, you know, gotten a little bit more granule and, uh, and objective now than it was in the past. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So, I agree with that. Um, Maybe building on that, you know, actually there was an SB Nation article, I think that came out, um, it was probably three or four years ago. And they talked about how NBA rosters are turning over so, so much. Um, I think they even said like the average roster was like, you know, 40% turnover every year. And that, that seemed high. Um, you know, maybe we can speak to it a little bit more. I'm sure it's, it's context dependent, but you know, the, 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 the gist of the article was like, we aren't seeing these days of like Ginobili and Parker and Duncan, like just knowing each other intimately and you know, having this core group of guys together for a long time. And you know, the, the article was actually written much more as like a quality of play thing. Like this is why you're seeing, you know, just guys shooting three pointers and running very simple plays. And, um, you know, they even talked about how it may have impacted the NBA's like decision to, to schedule more off days. So teams actually had to practice and all that. But, you know, I immediately got to thinking about sports medicine slash training conditioning implications, just because you feel like when, when all these guys show back up at the start of training camp, it's like speed dating, right? You're, you're trying to get to know them. You're trying to figure out who are the guys that were broken at the end of last season that you thought were going to get better and rest didn't work. So you never want to get surprised, but when you get brand new players, like it's a, it's a very different dynamic. And, you know, like I think baseball and basketball are probably similar in that regard. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like your players can leave on the last day of the season and they're under no contractual obligations to even communicate with you until they come back. Like if they do that, it's purely voluntarily. If they let you come visit them and, you know, watch workouts with them, their private trainers or, or whatever it is, that's, that's all voluntary on their part. Whereas the NFL, it's a little bit more mandated. So I feel like that's the biggest challenge is getting surprised. Do you feel like you've constantly had to kind of speed date those guys, you know, to, to find out what makes them tick, you know, really, really quickly, and then only have to like kind of move on and start anew with, with other athletes when those rosters do update 12 months later? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I was thinking about, uh, there's definitely a couple teams that we had massive turnover uh, a couple years in Charlotte, for sure. I think one year in Atlanta, we had a really, really big turnover. Like golden state was different. I mean, it was pretty stable. Yeah. I mean, our off seasons were super short. So, yeah. uh, which is obviously what you want. Trade off. Um, you know, I think for me personally, like I understand it's a business, um, or there's a business aspect to, to the game. Um, and so I don't get crazy worked up about it. Although I will say this, I mean, there's certainly a level of anxiety when a new guy comes in and, and you obviously want to do a good job with your, you know, ex- explaining and expressing how your program works and kind of get them integrated into what you're doing. Um, and I think there's a couple different things, like whether you're in the in-season, whether it's in-season trade or an off-season situation certainly matters. I mean, in the off-season, you're able to kind of, hey, slowly introduce things. Like, this is how we do things. Like, here's my, you know, and I think for for a lot of these situations, it starts with, with both situations, it starts with the assessment. Yeah. Um, if I can, 
I get them in. I try to get as much of my testing done as, as quickly as I can. And then I sit down with them. And because I guess, and I'll just take one step back and like for the player, it's a stressful situation. Um, certainly if it's in season, I mean, their routines are being upended. They have to move to a new city. Yep. Uh, you know, they're meeting new staff just as you're, as you're meeting a new player and, and they have to meet really a whole new organization um, as opposed to me just meeting this one player. Um, so there's a lot of things that are kind of, kind of probably going on through their head. And so my goal is again, to just give them a good assessment, help them first to just, Hey, what are you bringing from this other team that, that was important to you? Um, and that you liked, and, you know, we're going to go through my assessment. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you my interpretation of what I'm seeing with you. And then let's try to marry these things together throughout the rest of this season. Um, or, or, you know, as we move towards the the beginning of the season, um, and then we can, and then from there, you know, kind of see how it, how it goes. Now, what I typically find is players will hold on to like the one or two things that are, that they, they found was really important to them. And then they slowly adopt, you know, the things that I've kind of bring in, um, to the, you know, to the point where, you know, eventually it's just a, I'm just training this player who's on my team. Um, so I do think, I do think it's important to just kind of be mindful of, of that relationship and like that they're bringing something from somewhere else. Um, because at the end of the day, like you want them to be just as comfortable as, as they, you know, make that transition as smooth as you can. So, uh, but yeah, I think the assessment, a robust assessment is really your biggest key and being able to explain your results well and why you're going to put those results into a program. That's maybe that's a good jumping off point as I was going to ask you about assessment anyway, and you led right into it. Like, you know, when you get a brand new athlete, whether it's a trade or, you know, first day of, of camp, when you interact with them or you, you go and you see them in the off season when they, they join the organization, what's going to be, um, you know, your, your go-to process. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of look at it in, in kind of three different ways or three different sections of like a physical body. It's like, okay, well, what's their body structure? And that's, that'll be their anthros, height, weight, wingspan. Um, I don't, I may not collect all of that stuff. I mean, that would be something I would certainly collect during like a draft process. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll get some body composition data just to look at fat mass, lean mass, and how that might feed into nutrition programming. And, and, and I actually, I mean, sometimes some instances I like to use the body comp data as like somewhat of a proxy towards fitness levels, um, mm-hmm. especially if I have like some historical data on a player. Yeah. Um, and then I'll look at, you know, for lack of a better word, just their posture and their alignment. What is their bowling alignment? Um, and what, what is, what does it appear that their muscles are doing in a quiet stance? Uh, that can give me some insights into, um, you know, possibly how they move as I go through the rest of my, my process. So after body structure, then it's movement testing and two levels of this. It's, I I'll put them on the table and I'll do some joint range of motion, some very simple orthopedic tests, um, of, of the hip and shoulder. Um, and, from there, I'll put them on their feet and I'll go through some standing tests, standing rotation, toe touch, squat, split squat, and then just a single leg stance. Sometimes I'll do um, some upper body testing as well, just uh, shoulder flexion and, and just IRs and ERs uh, in standing. Um, and so from there, that gives me a little bit of an idea. Okay, well, how is he able to take his body structure, his the form of his body and move with it and coordinate it? Um, and then there, from there it's okay. So it's, it's body structure movement and then athleticism and athleticism for me is just, okay, how can they produce force and velocity? Um, and specifically in basketball, I look in the context of like jumping, sprinting and changing direction. Um, and then the other part of, of athleticism for lack of a better term is just their fitness level and fitness for me would just be, you know, obviously anaerobic and aerobic systems and how they're able to execute. And for, I think basketball specifically, how, how can they repeatedly execute force and velocity over the course of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a period of time. Um, and so I, you know, within that, like specifically, I guess when they're like, we'll use force plates for our jumps and there's a, uh, we like using, uh, I'm kind of rethinking s- some of my battery on this, but, um, you know, a counter movement jump can tell you a lot. Um, I think you can, there are other jumps you can do, um, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak too much towards other jumps, but certainly the counter movement can give you some insights, uh, and 
and then just generally looking at how they how they run and and how they change direction. Um, the training process just also allows you to take take a good look at that as well. Um, and so I guess. So the output of all that, so the output of all that testing is like, okay, where do I go with that? It's like, okay, well, try to define their needs based off of what you know, what a basketball player needs. Um, And then making, and I think the second part is really about the assessment is that for me, it gives me better decisions about my exercise selection and and actually my programming. Yeah. For me personally, I like to put guys through ranges of motion that they have, not ranges, not force them through range of of motion that they don't have. And so, yeah, if I have to box squat a guy at, you know, uh, 90 degrees of, of, of knee flexion, hip flexion, like, okay, like that's where he's at. Now it's not to say we won't work down if he, if he achieves more range of motion, but I'm also not going to force a square peg into a round hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's, so that's where kind of the, that's where the, the process kind of, um, becomes important for me. How vitally important is it just to communicate with the athlete throughout, you know, to, to actually talk about, here's what we're looking at. Here are the things, um, cause obviously you don't want to spend, you know, an hour just staring at somebody judging them, which, mm-hmm. you know, does, does nothing to nurture a relationship, but at the same time you want to get them invested in the process and make them appreciate that you're someone that like you're there to help, like you have their best interest in mind. Yeah. And unfortunately this is probably something I, I started to realize more over time, um, because this should be something that should just be done up front is like, yeah. Any results, anything you test on a guy, like y- it is their information and you, yeah. and it's my, it's of my opinion that that information has to get back to the player. Mm-hmm. It's like imperative. Um, and so, you know, so that's kind of a goal of mine is, is whenever I test something and even as I do like quick reassessments and certain things, it's like, you have to give that information back, tell them what their numbers are, mm-hmm. um, tell them what that means. And, you know, how that either changes your program or reinforces the program that you already have. Absolutely. Um, so I'm curious, maybe building on this assessment talk, like obviously the number one goal of an assessment is to get the information you need to write a, a high quality program to deliver a, an ideal training effect. Uh, when you actually get to program design coaching, do you think there are certain elements of that process that, you know, are applicable across all sports, whether we're, and you, you interact with a ton of them in your, your Connecticut time, obviously you're more focused in basketball now, but are there things that you think everybody should really appreciate, whether they're baseball or football or, or basketball coaches? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. So it's like, what are the principles of kind of like a program design? I mean, I, I still kind of just go back to two things and this isn't revolutionary, but it's like sports, speci- sport specificity, and then individual specificity. I think if you kind of focus on those two things. So like from a sport specificity perspective, it's like, okay, how much force do they need? You know, how fast do they need to create that force? And then how many times over and over again, do they have to create that force over whatever period of time that is? And so if you just look at it from that perspective, it's like, okay, you can kind of get a determination of how much strength, how much strength, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, how much strength yeah. they need and, 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 and Hey, is rate of force development extremely important or, or can you have a longer impulse, um, you know, uh, or, ha- you know, have a longer force over, over a longer period of time? Um, it, it, obviously thinking more like a you know, power lifter or something like that, but, yeah. um, and then obviously the energy system stuff kind of shakes out with this. Well, how many times does it occur? So that's kind of, I would say, you know, really from like a principal standpoint, from like a sport specific sport specificity perspective. And then like individually, it's like the five again, kind of like, I guess the best example is what I gave before, like taking those findings and trying to put that into a person, Mm -hmm. Um, like who is this human being and, and how can I help this human being optimize themselves towards their, this goal that they're trying to create? Um, I think at the NBA level, I see a lot of the same type of, of body, um, and, and obviously like, because, yeah, because everything has been shaken out kind of pre- at every other level. Yeah. I think if I was working in a high school, like I would see a much greater variation of basketball player bodies. I was like, because yeah, because you, you know, the, the specific requirements to be a spe- uh, successful basketball player in high school are just, they're different, you know, they're different. Um, and you can get away with kind of the imperfect like NBA body, I guess, uh, you yeah. know? Um, so, um, so I guess that's what I was really just focused on. And rather than getting into like super specifics, I think there's so many different ways to train people. I, 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 and I don't want to like poo poo sets and reps, but I do think like, you know, 
I think if you look at things from from kind of that sport specificity and sport specificity and individual specificity yeah. standpoint, you're going to be you're going to do a pretty pretty good job. Yeah, you know what's interesting is like we, I haven't out, heard it outlined like that succinctly. I think that's actually an awesome kind of algorithm to look through it. I say you think about like the classic, hey, just uh, clean squat bench. Mm-hmm. And then go play your sport and it'll all magically work out. Like in, intuitively, I think we can both agree like that doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. both in the context of preparing for life's demands and the actual specificity of joint action, but also because you quickly realize like that that period of delayed transmutation where you take all this, you know, non-specific motor potential and try to actually apply it to a basketball court or a baseball field, it probably takes substantially longer. And, you know, you have concerns of pattern overload, all that stuff. But you know, I, I think, and if you actually apply this this test of both sports specificity and individual specificity, it, it quickly answers that question of whether that works. And the answer is mm-hmm. obviously a resounding no. But because the fact is, like, it's, it's not specific to the joint angles in many cases that you encounter in sports. But even beyond that, like, what are the chances that that's exactly what an individual needs in terms of their movement competencies and all that? Um, their their history of you know injuries, their you know their individual movement patterns. Um, I think that's a really cool way to look at it. So. So thank you. <laughs> um, so um, we've talked in the past also about how hard it is to learn to write training programs. I feel like we were both trying to figure this out at the same time, circa, mm-hmm. you know, 2003, 2004. Um, you know, when you look back, like I know there are certain pieces of advice I'd give to young coaches who want to learn to write good programs, but what are some of the things I know you've had interns that have, have kind of worked underneath you in, in various places and you learned on your own. How, what, what instruction would you give to them if they're trying to figure out how to write, you know, better, more comprehensive programs? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think first thing is just, just first thing is just start. And yeah. I think that goes along. This is just a principle of really anybody who wants to find success in something is that you have to accumulate experiences, um, successes and failures in order to kind of know what is right and wrong. Um, I do think you have to, and, and that's going to help you organize your program in a more methodical way. So that would be the second point is like, okay, have a methodical approach to how you, how you do this. And that's going to evolve over time as well. Um, keep those records and, and, you know, not necessarily so that you have to look back, but just because the process of writing something down makes it more real and concrete and, yeah. and forces you to think about it. Um, and, you know, I think being able to, as you gain knowledge and over time, that's good. It should be allow you to kind of explain your program better and mm-hmm. explain your program to the athlete. Um, and then I guess I would say like kind of the last thing is like, let, let the assessments be your guide, mm-hmm. your program, like don't manufacture things out of, out of nothing. And, and if you, and that's, I think that's actually the reason why the, a good assessment is really important and a good interpretation too. And the interpretation comes with time mm-hmm. um, and experience and, and learning more. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge there, but you know, mm-hmm. again, I would say start just write, know what you're writing have reasons why you're writing it start to organize your methods and just gain experience. And, and again, let assessments be your guide towards the program. Do you find, you know, one of the things that's interesting about basketball is, is is, there are smaller rosters maybe compared to other sports, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you look at, you know, the NBA, you guys carry 15 guys, um, you know, with a pretty good size sports staff, right? That's, that's Mm -hmm. the number I I should know this. Um, (laughs) You know, in baseball it's it's 26, but in, in baseball you have, this kind of direct relationship with the minor leagues, which which can take you up over you know three hundred when you consider roster sizes plus IL lists and things like that. So you you can kind of quickly observe trends where if hey we're going to do a done of this, and then a year from now you're like oh we had thirty percent more hip injuries this year maybe this wasn't what we needed. Do you find that in basketball it's hard to scrutinize what you've changed like what you've adjusted or or do you get enough real time feedback you know particularly by communicating with the rest of the sports medicine staff on on what's working in real time. Yeah, I think the I mean, players will definitely tell you whether something's working or not. Um, I, again, I think if you're doing your assessments periodically enough, you'll get a little bit of feedback on that. Now, there's a lot of factors that go on with like in season with the in season stuff, so you have to just be very judicious with how you how you interpret your results and some of these things. Like for example, like body composition. Um, I would say, um, yeah, I think the biggest like self feedback or feedback that I've gotten over time is. I guess the big, the best example I get is again, I've, I've kind of moved towards used to being like, Hey, full range of motion, everything to, Oh, Hey, I think, again, I think having limited ranges of motion in certain areas has been beneficial. And I think the changes that I've seen just from making that one adjustment, like players yeah. absolutely feel better when you give them 
allow them to just go through ranges that they have. And really, I guess what I mean by that is giving them ranges that, you know, having them train through ranges that are non-compensatory for lack of, a better, point. For lack of a better word. Um, so I think it can, so I guess to answer your question, like, yeah, I think, I think in the NBA, you have enough time to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing it well, um, you should definitely be able to make adjustments and, and, and kind of work through it because of, you know, how many few guys you have. Our director came from the NFL and he, he would straight up tell you, there's no way you can do that, at least on the fly. Like it's much more challenging to do it because there's just so many guys. Yeah. But yeah. And the NFL and the, the pace at which guys kind of work out throughout the day and things like that, like it can, it can absolutely be done. Interesting. Um, easy question. What's been your biggest growth area over the past year? What, what have you, what have you changed that you think has really helped? Oh man, I think, you know, I'll just go personal on this. I mean, being focusing on being a better father, being a better husband, you know, reconnecting faith wise, things like that. Like those have been things that have really helped me, uh, you know, I guess we, what they they say, if you can clean, you know, if you clean your own room first, then, you know, that can help you be a better person as you walk out the door, I guess. So, you know, just making sure like one thing I've done is I've, I've completely kind of gotten myself off social media over the last couple of years. Um, that's been a huge help for me just in terms of my focus. Now I know, I, I know I miss out on the newest trends in the fields, things like that. Like, <laughs> for better, for worse. the years I've started to realize that the newest trends are sometimes regurgitations of the past. Um, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I, so I don't feel like I miss too much. Uh, and, and yeah, these were personal decisions based off my personality and things that I was noticing in myself. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I still have the internet, so it's not like I'm not having yeah. access to, to different things, but, um, those are big things. Like I, I, those are big things to kind of help me with my focus and kind of help me, you know, just be a better person really. Um, and really, again, being a better person at home, um, that was, that was just critically important to me. Uh, I would say professionally, it's just continue. I think I've reached a point where like you, and I don't know if you feel the same, but like, like it's so easy to consume information, yep. um, but wrestling with that information and implementing it has always been an area where I probably needed to be better. And so that's kind of been a little bit of focus for me is, okay, like do how much more information can you consume? Yep. And so like wrestle the things that you've, that you, that you've started to learn over the last few years and, and, and put it into again, the model that you use and, and how do you implement that better? Yeah. It's probably the two, the two things that I've kind of focused on. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think success in, in, in really any realm, but particularly in, in this realm of, of coaching other athletes, it's always about closing the gap between what you know and what you can implement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people are naturally drawn to like trying to add more and more tools to the toolbox when in reality, like sometimes a screwdriver and a hammer, you know, used correctly can, can handle, you know, 80% of your thing. So, yeah. um, so I think I'm a little bit more aware of that. And it's, you know, you don't want to become like the cranky old man yelling at kids to get off your lawn. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you when you see these new principles, as you imply, a lot of them, a lot of them have been around for a long time. They're they're repackaged, and and you actually can. Now that I've been in the industry, you know, twenty plus years at this point, you start to realize where they failed in the past when they were misapplied, and and maybe you have a little bit of a better filter. And so I have to be really careful about like when a staff member brings up a new idea that I've kind of seen fall flat on its its face in the past that you don't uh, stifle their creativity, their open-mindedness, their, their growth mindset, you know, and rather you just, you ask challenging questions and, you know, you try to think about new ways where it might be able to be applied, you know, mm-hmm. in a unique way. So that, that's, that's actually, a, I think a really valid point. Um, you know, I'm curious, you're, you're a progressive thinker. You're always pondering ways to get better. You know, what are the things that, that are you're stewing on right now that excite you as maybe like a, a place where either you personally or the industry as a whole can take a big step forward in the, in the years ahead. Is there, is there anything that gets you really excited right now? Um, I, I've, I mean, the, the force plate in stuff is really interesting to me. And again, I've, I've used, I've been using force plates for a few, for years. I'm not an expert, um, but it's been, it's been cool to see how, uh, for me, marrying, marrying my assessment process. So it's more kind of, like, okay, what is, what is posture showing me that then shows up in their movement? Mm-hmm. What is in their movement showing me that then shows up in their jumping and their athleticism? 
um, that's the stuff that's really kind of got me going right now. And I want to really dive deeper kind of in that area. Um, just cause I think, you know, again, in talking with, again, Bill Hartman's a, a big kind of mentor for me and, you know, his discussions recently around how things are very iterative, meaning that like you see the repetitions of a lot of these compensations in different areas. <clears throat> I just find it really fascinating. And, and just, and, and when I see it in real time, it's like, wow, there's something there. And so that's kind of been my biggest kind of like what I've been trying to kind of really wrestle with, I guess, um, mentally and, and try to understand more. And then this is where, you know, your depth of knowledge from an anatomy perspective, like can really help you. And, and so, mm. you know, this is areas where I can, I can get better as well. So. I like that. Uh, all right. Lightning rounds stolen directly from Mike Robertson. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's, what's one boat, excuse me, one book that each coach should read. So I, you know, I, I love good to great by Jim Collins. Yeah. I just, yeah. and I love all of his work. Um, you know, so, I, so in, instead of like a training book or something like that, I would just say good to great. Like, I mean, I just love the principles there. Yeah. I just think they're timeless. And um, that particular book is just always a little bit special to me. If you could go back in time and give young Mike uh, some advice 20 years ago, what would it be? Yeah, I'd say be, be okay to fail. That's probably number one. Um, and then I would also say, hey, everyone's going to talk about research, but don't forget the importance of experience. That's huge. Um, and then, and I think the last thing I would say is just really embrace, embrace the hard stuff. And I tell my sons that yeah. all the time, it's like embrace the hard stuff. Like that's, that's, it's really important. And how old are your kids now? Uh, almost six, uh, four and two. So you're embracing the hard stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the thick of it right now. <laughs> right on. Um, all right. Last one. We have a lot of kids and their parents who listen to this podcast together. That's actually one of the most surprising things about this is how many like you know, dads and moms and sons are in the ride on the way to practice, like consuming this. Um, and obviously you're coming from the basketball background, but the lessons are, are you know, consistent across, um, you know, industries. If you could give one bit of advice to, you know, the kids and the parents, what would it be? Yeah. And I don't know how popular this is going to be, but I think my message is going to be, uh, like, listen, you can't have everything and you mm -hmm. can't be anything you want to be, unfortunately. Um, like no, but that being said, like there is something out there for mm -hmm. you as a, as a person and, and being able to like determine that, determine like what your own strengths and weaknesses are as a person, uh, what you've been given, you know, from a skill perspective um, and whatever that is, uh, you know, and being able to kind of hone in on what that is. Like, I think that's really a special thing. Um, I think it's easy to say like, yeah, like obviously you can't be everything, but like, I don't, I don't know when I was thinking about this and it's like, when I was a kid, I felt like I was always told, well, you can be anything you want to be. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, you can't. I was like, as I've gotten older, it was like, well, no, I couldn't be anything I wanted to be. I was like, and I wish somebody almost would have told me that. Um, because, you know, in the real world, it's like, uh, it's just a little bit different. So, and I think the only way to kind of really figure that out is like, you got to go out in the world and experience that. And you can experience it. You cannot experience it through kind of the manufactured real world that, that comes through your phone. Um, <laughs> And I, and you know, these are kind of reasons why I've stepped away from social media and things like that. But, um, you know, I think that just becomes really important. And, and with that, I think there comes suffering and, and suffering is like, like, I think we've gotten to this point where suffering is such a fear for people. Um, and it was for myself as sometimes, but like, I do think we have to embrace that a little, like embrace suffering, learn from it. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. Um, and so, and I, and I think it's like, and I do think it's necessary for success and becoming a more robust, like resilient human being as like we move forward into what, you know, whatever we have coming forward. So, you know, so I think that would be my, my somewhat cynical, probably advice that nobody really wants to hear. It's like, sorry, man, like you're not going to be, you can't really be everything. And, and I can't be everything either, you know, and, and, um, and this just is you know, understanding your limitations is, is just a huge part of actually you taking steps forward. I, I think that's really good advice. I and mean, I talk a lot about follow, follow your passion is bad advice. <laughs> like you, follow yeah. your, you follow your specific marketable skills that, you know, can be optimally honed. And then eventually you can redeem those, 
you know, that, that career capital for the things that you like, whether it's autonomy mm -hmm. or, you know, a better work-life balance or more money or whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, let's be real. Neither of us were playing center in the NBA. We could be yeah, a, I mean, a very marginalized version of it if we wanted to, you know, play pickup hoops at the YMCA, but it ain't happening. That's the easiest example. And I was having yeah. a conversation with this with somebody the other day. It's like, listen, man, like NBA stars were somewhat predetermined and like, yes, there are exceptions to the rule, but, but those exceptions are so few and far between. And, and again, you, you know, that it's, it's just really important to kind of recognize. I think it's important to recognize that. So. Absolutely, man. Well, it's, and it's a good place to wrap this up, man. Um, hey, I'm, I'm so uh, super happy for all the success you've had. It's been cool watching your career from afar. And um, just because I, I kind of was there at the, the start of it and you're a guy who was destined for greatness. And it's, it's cool to see you uh, accumulating rings on your finger and, and really changing the industry for the better. So I commend you for all your hard work. Well, no, I appreciate your time. It's great to see you. And, you know, again, you're actually, again, one of the people who I'm not here if it wasn't for for guys like you. And so um, I appreciate everything you've done for me and my career. And, you know, I'm just thrilled to be able to kind of share this with you. And I know it, yeah, it's been a long time. And so it's been awesome to just kind of catch up and and uh, to share everything. Absolutely. Thank you, man. You did all the hard work, but I appreciate you taking the time and, and travel safe and good luck tonight. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.